0: Syria has now been at war for seven years, and if anything, it's getting worse.
1: An increasing number of civilians are feeling the effects. Many forced to leave their homes (laughs) and now dependent on humanitarian aid.
0: They shelter behind rocks and under tents pitched in mud. These people have fled fighting more than once. They know fear and desperation. March 2018 marks seven years since beginning of the Syrian conflict. It is a conflict that has left 13.1 million people in need of assistance in the country and forced 5.6 million people to flee Syria. This week on Crisis Conversations, we talk to three experts from across the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement about this devastating conflict, what we are doing to help and what the future holds for the people of Syria. Our first guest this week is Penny Sims, a member of our media team here at the British Red Cross, who has covered the conflict for a number of years now and even worked in Syria in 2014, 16 and 17. So Penny, it's difficult to describe the devastation that this conflict has caused in Syria over the past seven years. Just how much of a toll has this taken on the people who live there?
2: Well, Syria and the conflict, it's always really difficult to describe. And typically people start with numbers. And they're such huge numbers, it's really hard to get your head around them. But what that doesn't tell you is a full story, because it doesn't tell you about the people who have been displaced time after time. I mean, we met people who were displaced seven times over. And you imagine a toll it takes on you each time you have to get up and leave and do it again and again. And the toll it's taken on people overall is you'll find pretty much everybody you speak to has been affected by this. Everybody has either had a relative killed or they don't know where they are anymore, or someone who's been injured, or they're not in their home anymore, it's affected absolutely everybody you talk to. I mean, some of the conversations I'd have with my colleagues at the Red Crescent, you know, I'd I'd ask a simple question like, oh, how was your weekend? And you get an answer like, oh, you know, I just moved house for the fourth time this year. And that is because the house got damaged it got mortared they moved out and then that place got hit and then they moved out and then that place got hit and then they they mended their house and they went home and then that place got hit so there's all these everyday things that are affecting people
0: no, that's very true you mentioned it there that you were working with the Red Crescent, and you said to me before we started recording that you'd kind of been over there for around 10 months in the past kind of few years so how was that experience for you that day-to-day for you when you were living in was it damascus where you were
2: Yeah, I was in Damascus mostly, and we did some travel out to Hama and Homs and some other places. And, oh, it's mad. You can't really describe Syria in one way, because it's all things at the same time. You know, it's this incredibly beautiful country with fantastic, friendly, wonderful people, so welcoming, so hospitable, and some areas... Oh, you know, they you wouldn't know necessarily there's a war going on, but you can hear things, you can see things. There's always these indications, you know, shops are closed and people who aren't there, and then you start to notice, okay, there's not many people living in this tower block anymore. Where have they gone? And then there's other areas where it's almost indescribable, the level of devastation. You drive through places and it's just like, hollowed out empty buildings staring back at you I've driven through places where you cannot see how it's possible for human life to exist in that place it's been so devastated so it's it's a very difficult country to describe because it's all things going on at the same time geographically it's really different but it's if I was going to say one thing overall it is a wonderful place it is one of my favorite places in the world I loved my time there so much I loved the people And it's just devastating what's happening to people.
0: So what are the British Red Cross and the Red Crescent movement actually doing to help people in Syria?
2: Well, we're doing a bit of the emergency stuff. We're supporting that through the Syrian Red Crescent. And we're supporting a bit of the the longer term help too. Because it's, you know, there's an emergency going on. And at the same time, it's been going on for seven years. So it's just, we've never really done a response like this. It's a bit different with that reason. So we do food parcels. Which are still needed even seven years on for all the people who end up being out of their houses suddenly. And then we also do a lot of livelihoods projects. Uh we've done some great stuff like uh supporting a, a carpet weaving project, um, getting sheep for farmers who are returning. So when they've they've left an area, then they're coming home, all the livestock is gone. So that project has been fantastic. We've now seen people who've who've managed to grow big flocks um, and also a seed project in Idlib so that people who've been displaced um, can use their farming skills, give them some seeds, give them some tools and they can get on and, and, and start farming again. So yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But one of the most important things that isn't sort of the thing that people think of when you're giving money to an aid appeal is also to support the Syrian Arab Red Crescent. Those guys they've given seven years of their life to help their fellow people so they need they need the kit to be able to do that they need ambulances they need uniforms they need the training it's that kind of day-to-day stuff the overhead stuff that they really need so we do that too.
0: No it's such important work so you said that Syria is one of your favourite places in the world. So what hopes do you have for the future of the country? I mean, it's, it's been a devastating number of years, but surely there's, a, uh, there's some hope somewhere.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, you see people doing amazing things. The resilience of people, you know, people setting up businesses or trying to come up with really um, innovative ways to try and, and help people and try and do stuff. So there's definitely this, this resilience at the heart of Syrian people so you can see what the future could be. Um, it's just so frustrating because I would go there and you would see pictures of like amazing monuments, all the history, all the things that people saw when I used to go on holiday there. And each time I would go and I'd think, oh, you know, maybe maybe in a couple of years I can come back as a tourist. And so far that hasn't happened. I think there needs to be a real commitment by the people who have that power to bring about what what will have to be ultimately a political solution. Because, you know, the people, the normal people... The way it's affecting their lives, they're incredibly resilient and hopeful, but we need to give them something to hope for. It's not until you look back at what this ancient city used to be that you realize what is being lost here.
0: Joining me now in the studio is Maria Said. Maria used to work with the Syrian Arab Red Crescent in Damascus before moving to the UK last year and starting to work with the British Red Cross. So to start with, Maria, if you could just describe what Syria was like before the conflict started seven years ago.
3: Um, I only remember before the war what a diverse modern city it was uh, with a very strong cultural heritage. I mean, I used to take the car after work with my friends and start at some old souk where we lost our ourselves there between the smells and the old shops, had yummy um, street food, and then we would move to the modern part of the city to catch some movie and end up having dinner at uh, some huge shopping center in an Italian restaurant. Things were very different. I really hope no one has ever to go through this, but only try to close your eyes For a few seconds and imagine if yourself, uh, if your life turned from this to the atrocities we see every day in the news about Syria.
0: Obviously, it's uh, it's people who don't know that much about the situation. It's quite shocking to hear that description of Damascus in comparison to what people know about it now. So if you could describe kind of what led you to join up with the Syrian Arab Crescent and and the situation uh, around that time.
3: Uh, I saw everything around me falling apart people losing their means of living, houses being destroyed, people being displaced, most, most terrible people losing their loved ones. On the personal level, mm, I lost my job. My parents' village turned to a front line for fighting actors. Every kind of atrocities and human suffering. But uh, at that time, I just knew what I wanted to do. And I was very determined on doing it. I knew that I wanted to work with the Syrian Arab Red Crescent and be part of this this international humanitarian movement, part of this huge effort to elevate human suffering. And imagine doing this when the roads are cut, the communications are cut when people when when our volunteers and our staff members themselves are under fire
0: could you describe what actions they would actually do on the ground because it's quite amazing to hear the, the kind of things that uh, these people who are obviously Syrian nationalists themselves mostly are doing to to help their own country
3: absolutely uh, thank you very much for bringing this up helping your your own country is something very important very good opportunity i can only remember being even myself, as I was very motivated and very uh, determined on doing my job, but I was surprised by my colleagues in besieged areas in Aleppo, in Deir zor in al Their families are in danger, but they are so motivated to learn and to deliver their best um, performance at every time, whether it's first aid, uh, dealing with first aid, uh, when with explosions, with airstrikes, with conflicts, with different, with different battles, or whether it is uh, distributing uh, food and, and non-food items. Actually, I have to say, if it wasn't for Sark, so many places in Syria would not be drinking clean water. Again, before the, the war, relatively, when compared to other countries around us, Syria had a very strong economical, health, educational system, Things were going fairly good when compared to our surrounding. But we had solid systems, and these su- systems, seven years through the conflict now, these protracted conflicts, are now exhausted. SARC has been able to cover this in, on, when it comes to health to a very good extent, with the mobile health clinics being everywhere around Syria. It's very rarely that Sark is not able to access
0: Yes, and I mean the, the like you mentioned there the work they do is is amazing and so wide ranging and everything from kind of running towards where the crisis has happened to planning for the future events. Um, just to kind of go back to to your story a little bit now, so you came to the UK in twenty sixteen and started working for the British Red Cross, um, and you said that you still have some family members back in Damascus. And I was just interested to know kind of. how... How they, are, how they describe Damascus at the moment, like seven years on since the beginning of the conflict.
3: When you are living the war day to day and you know that bombs are falling next to your work or the road you take is not completely safe or you're worried about your parents where they are in their workplace, you're just absorbed in your day-to-day problems. You don't realise how traumatised you are until you are away from, the, from, from, from war. I remember the first couple of weeks in the UK every day, every time I heard a door slammed, I thought it was a bomb or an explosion. Uh, Of course, the last couple of weeks were very intense. And the war in Syria goes into different episodes of intensity. You know, violence rises and then things calm down. Uh, The last few weeks were very intense. Danger is everywhere and I really hope my parents are safe. I know they sometimes spend time in other cities with our relatives when things are very intense, but uh, I mean, we have to have hope. Hope is, every, is all we have. The violence in Ghouta is just the
2: latest battle in a war that marked its seventh anniversary this week. Tens of thousands of people are fleeing the area, which has been besieged for weeks.
0: Our final guest this week is Dr. Hossam Faisal, the Syria Crisis Programme Manager for the British Red Cross. Hossam joins us over the phone from Beirut after spending the last couple of days in eastern Ghouta in Damascus. Thanks very much for joining us, Hossam. Thank
1: you.
0: To start with, can you describe what you were doing in eastern Ghouta and what the situation is like there?
1: Yes, so uh, yesterday uh, morning uh, we joined the Syrian Arab Red Crescent staff and volunteers in different uh, collective shelters where they were hosting uh, and receiving uh, at the same time the people who are fleeing uh, S.M. Ghouta. You know, it was, uh, you don't have the words to describe uh, what, what we saw yesterday. So the humanitarian mission of uh, Syrian Arab and Sark is mainly to support those people in need. Uh, regardless uh, where they are. So while people, of course, uh, still inside Ruta, and for the third day uh, in a row that FARC is delivering food and non-food items, first aid and health services, inside San Ruta. at the same time, they are supporting uh, the safe passage and the transport of the people who decided to, to leave Ruta and accommodating them in collective shelters. And as I mentioned, in those shelters, They provide all kinds of services, starting from shelter, providing uh, clean water, uh, sanitation services, health, first aid services, food, hot meals, uh, kitchen sets, distributions, uh, erecting uh, shelters, uh, temporary shelters for those people to have um, privacy and to have some rest, at the same time providing them with emotional support. Of course, you know, when talking to people, you can see the impact uh, of several years of the crisis and being in those uh, areas where they were uh, cut off from uh, the external uh, world. You can see, you know, I was talking to a family, to a father, he was telling me how many days they spent in an underground uh, shelter. At the same time, talking to another, he was talking about the struggle. He went through to get his insulin injections and to get food for his family. You know, he was telling me that how they were cooking, they were burning their own uh, clothing to generate heat uh, to be able to cook because they ran out of all other basic commodities.
0: So can you describe your journey kind of into eastern Ghouta? What kind of things were you driving past and how did you actually get there?
1: Actually, you know, we left uh, mainly from the city of Damascus. And the minute you are leaving the city, you start to see the signals of distractions on the road. And I remember when we arrived at the entrance of one of the shelters, we saw, you know, at least at least 500 or 600 people queuing, just waiting, you know, to ask someone for a piece of information. It's chaos, you know, you have a lot of people. At the same time, you have a lot of distraction. When you go on the highway, of course, you hear at the same time the the sounds in the background of the shelling in a nearby area, so you always link this together, you know, you have people now may uh, be injured or uh, may uh, lose their life, at the same time you are going to visit people they didn't uh, move outside their own neighborhood for three or four years. So it's a mixture of different feelings at the same time when you arrive there and you see that the Red Cross uh, and the Red provide are able to provide services that gives a sign of hope that at least, you know, we are trying to do something. So it's, as I said, it's a mixture of sad feelings when you see all of that distraction. At the same time, you feel quite happy when you see how the eyes of the people Get, uh, get more, uh, let's say, happy when they see a Red Cross or a Red Crescent volunteer coming to them with their support or answering a question.
0: One last thing I wanted to ask you actually was related to that and I've spoken to our previous guests on this week's episode about this as well and I just wanted to know whether there is a sense of hope or what your sense of the future is of Syria and what your hopes are for the future of the country because obviously at the moment it, it's it's a pretty devastating state of affairs.
1: Yeah, of course, you know, uh, a lot of people we met, they were telling us we need ju- just this madness to stop. You know, we need to go back to our uh, life. We need just to go back to our home. We need to rebuild. We need to start thinking about building our uh, area to rebuild our lives again. At the same time, we need to keep in mind it's not just Huda because as we speak uh, about SM Huda the same situation, we have in the north for the people displaced from Afrin, and there you are talking about 100,000 people uh, displaced in less than a week. It's a huge number, and when they are leaving, of course, they are leaving their lives behind. They are leaving their houses, their neighbors, their neighborhood, their own businesses. So, of course, those people, uh, uh, their own resilience is high, because in the minute of. Uh, let's say uh, they are desperate even to get just clean water to drink. They keep thinking when we will go back, you know, we need to go back, we need to restart our lives, we need to rebuild, we need to connect with our uh, relatives, we need to find our family members, and we need to look into what we can uh, do to uh, restart our lives quickly.